Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. This is Engage 360. I'm Don Payne, your host, and we're glad to have you with us again. Over the next few months, we want to spotlight a number of our graduates serving in a variety of arenas. And I think you'll not only be encouraged by what they're doing uh, and also learn something of value from each of them, but I think you're also going to simply find them quite interesting, maybe even fun, uh, if, of course, it's possible for a seminary graduate to be fun, if that's, you know, even a thing. Uh, But before we go any further... I want to pause and give credit to our remarkable production team who make Engage 360 a reality. And since any good podcast host does that, those of you who listen to other podcasts probably think I'm some kind of ingrate because you don't hear me do that very much. But you need to know that I actually do it almost every time, but our wonderful, uber-talented Uh, recording and editing guru, Krista Ebert, often takes it out for the sake of time. So I'm putting this up front this time, uh, partially to tell Krista not to take this out, but to let me give her credit for what you're doing right now in editing this. Uh, You're a rock star and you need to own that, okay? I want to thank also uh, Dusty DeSanto, Rob Foley, Aaron Johnson, Maritza Smith, Sean Truman, and Andrew Wayand, who round out our uh, podcast production team. Okay, as I'm recording this, I'm at the annual meetings of the Evangelical Theological Society in San Diego. It's a rough place to go for a conference, I know, Uh, and some of you will know what it means for professors to go to academic conferences. If you don't, it's kind of like getting a couple of thousand PhDs together for a three-day nerd fest. Uh, And let me tell you, it is a rager. Um, can Can you possibly have more fun than listening to your peers read scholarly papers about their latest research at sometimes breakneck speed. Uh, that's about as good, at, good as it gets. Well, in the, in the middle of all that gut-splitting revelry at an academic conference, uh, I have the privilege, and I'm, and I'm not joking now, uh, to sit down for a bit with our graduate, Dr. Kent Eilers, who is professor of theology at Huntington University in Huntington, Indiana. Uh, Kent is a Michigan guy who Graduated from Calvin College, then completed an MDiv at Denver Seminary, and from there went across the pond to do a Ph.D. in theology at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland. Uh, Kent has taught at Huntington since 2009. He is the uh, co-author with Kyle Strobel of Sanctified by Grace, A Theology of the Christian Life, Uh, co-author with David Bushart of Theology as Retrieval. He is the author of uh, Doing Theology Wisely, a Practical Introduction to a Reflective Discipline, and that is forthcoming 2020 from IVP Academic. I'm really excited about that. Kent has a blog called Theology Forum, and I've uh, read his blog a bit, and you will do yourself well to uh, check with, in with his blog, or at least periodically, if not regularly. So, Kent, welcome to Engage 360. It's great to be here, Don. Great to see you. We are... Um, this is a, a great time to reconnect. We have not seen each other in a, a few years, so this is kind of a double dipping for me, and I'm really excited for the rest of you to get to know Kent a little bit through the podcast. Um, Kent, first, you you served as a pastor for a number of years uh, before moving into the realm of academia. Uh, actually, I think while you were working on your MDiv, is that correct? Yeah, I got involved in local church ministry as a college student, felt God 
calling me into some kind of ministry role. I didn't know what that role should be. I didn't know how I was suited to fulfill it, but I had a sense of calling. So being in Grand Rapids, where there's literally almost a church on every corner, uh, it was not hard to find a place where they were looking for someone eager to serve and get involved. And so I began interning in a couple different churches as a college student. And from there on, just played many different roles in various churches around the U.S., um, was on staff uh, at a church in Grand Rapids, Michigan for a little while, and then in Colorado Springs uh, for about six years uh, before leaving to complete my Ph.D. Tell us a, a bit about how that, uh, that track record of ministry experience in the church has affected your um, well, affected you as a professor. Yeah. I think it's, it's just impossible for me to imagine what I do as a theologian in any way disconnected from the church. I just, I, I, I can't imagine my vocation as a theologian being anything but a vocation that serves the church, even though I teach in a, uh, a Christian liberal arts institution, even though I teach some, you know, some graduate students or I'll, I'll speak at retreats or seminars or wherever— the way I understand what it is to be a theologian is informed and shaped by my time working in local churches. Tell us a little bit about the, the courses you teach or what your role is at Huntington. Yeah, my title is Professor of Theology, and uh, I teach a, a range of different classes. So I teach a systematic theology cycle, which is two classes. I also teach uh, medical ethics for all of our nursing and pre-med students. I teach a, a history of Christianity class, a contemporary theology class, uh, and I also teach uh, some just kind of general introduction classes on the Bible. So I'm I'm one of those generalist guys now. Good yeah, utility infielder. Huh? That's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, when a course needs to be taught, uh, I'm one of the guys who steps in and teaches it, which has been really fun. Um, it has pushed me to be a better theologian to teach ethics. It has pushed me to be a better theologian to teach the history of Christianity. Uh, that's just, I, I don't know if I would have signed on to all of that at the beginning. Yeah. It might have felt like a distraction from the things I really wanted to invest in. Uh, but I, I have learned that, that teaching those classes helps me to be a better theologian. Which is your favorite? What's your wheelhouse? Uh, my favorite class is whatever class I'm about to walk into next. <laughs> Spoken by a true professor, a true teacher. Yeah, yeah. What have you learned um, about yourself over the, your, uh, your time being a professor? I think I'm learning that it is very easy to lose yourself in this profession. Uh, and I think that pastors in local churches may experience the same thing. And people in ministry vocations and parachurch organizations as well, I think, would find this, is that when you when you identify your sense of calling and vocation with the kingdom, it's, it's easy to just expend everything that you are. And I think at least in, in terms of professors and pastors, you know, people look at you and they look at you with that title in mind. And there's so much expectation and often the illusion that you are something you're not, like that you cease to be the person that you are. Yeah. And I think over the last 10 years of teaching, I'm just, I'm learning more and more of what does it mean for me to be me in mm. this role, to be mm. truly Kent. Uh, rather, you start to lose yourself in, you start to become the impressions people have of you. Is that? I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be Kent? I cut you off there when you were. Going no, down I, I think that, you know, just 
walking into the classroom uh, in, a, in a place of authenticity of who I am uh, and, and not feeling that I have to be some version of myself that I think one needs to be to do what I do, uh, but to be who I am in my role and to yeah, come to terms, I guess, with the fact that there are some things I do well and there's some things I, I don't do well. And um, for me to be me in my role is to bring who God has shaped me to be into the places that he's called me to be and that that's what I need to do. I kind of jumped over having you introduce yourself a little bit more like with family and just the broader scope of your life. But if you want to tell us a little bit about that and then use that maybe as a, a segue to um, reflecting a little bit on how the different chapters of your life have shaped you. Yeah, I, I, can, I can certainly do that. That's a great question. Um, I've been married to my wife, Tammy, for 20 years. I have two daughters, uh, a 15-year-old named Hannah and an 11-year-old named Abigail. Um, I have just recently, I'm thinking now of other really significant relationships in my life that you, it's hard to know me without knowing about these. Um, I've recently begun meeting regularly with a spiritual director, uh, and I have several very close friends that I would call spiritual friends. Um, and I think what I'm learning through just being in relationship with people, like for example, I, I, it's hard for me to teach about covenant now without drawing in all that I understand about the marriage covenant into my classroom. So to speak of the covenant that God makes with Abram uh, and with David and others, to speak of covenant is to let that be informed of what I understand about the, the, the permanency of the marriage covenant. Uh, to speak about God's love and compassion is to speak about the love and compassion I've learned being a dad. Um, that Jesus would tell us to pray to Abba means something different to me, being a dad. Oh yeah, that makes it very real. Yeah, and I want to bring that into the classroom. Um, to be in close spiritual friendships with people, including my wife, uh, is to understand something of what it is to do theology in community. And so I want my classrooms to be environments where we're turning to one another in mutuality, turning toward one another in expectancy to receive something from each other. Um, and I think that what I'm learning from being someone under spiritual direction is an increasing openness, I think, that God is going to surprise me and change me and that he's at work in my life, even in the classroom, in ways that I might not always be like aware of. Uh, so I have, I've been teaching theology for, what, 10 years now at Huntington. I am not bored at all. It is always new. It's so good to hear. Um, and I think always challenging. Yeah, always challenging. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about your books. Uh, I know that for every author, there is always a backstory to every book we write. And you've written with uh, our good mutual friend Kyle on sanctification. You've written with our good mutual friend and colleague Dave on theology as retrieval. You've got one coming up on, on how to do theology. So give us a little bit of the backstory of why you chose to wrote about wrote. <laughs> why you chose to write about those themes. What, what do those reflect I for think, you? I think it's a great question. I think I've had a long-term interest in the intersection between God's action in the world and our action in the world. So my very first book, uh, Faithful to Save, was a, a developed version of my doctoral dissertation, 
And a big piece of that study was, what is it for God to reconcile the world? Like, what is, what, like, what is his agency? Like, what happens when his agency meets created reality? And a lot of that has just informed my future projects. Uh, it made me very interested in the Christian life because the Christian life is that joint at which created reality as being humans meets the grace of God in action in our life through the Holy Spirit. And so I think my projects with Kyle have, have been a big piece of that. Uh, retrieval is another moment where we are kind of aware that to be the church is to be a community of people who are being acted upon by God in the world. And so we're, we're looking backwards at our history, at our foundations, at what we're passing along as those who are being acted on by God as the church. Um, I, I look forward to the projects I'd like to do if the Lord allows me to have time. I, I think about the mystery of grace continues to fascinate me mm -hmm. and capture my imagination. Uh, that God acts in created reality in gracious ways and that that meets us in our embodiedness, that meets us in our createdness in all the ways that are authentic and true to what it is to be created. Theologians have been wrestling with that thing, the grace nature question from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, and I find myself more and more interested in spending more and more time on that. Seems like as theologians, we can become obsessed with distilling grace to a sort of calculable reality that works against the, the very mysterious and highly personal nature of God's grace, though still deeply and ultimately real, though, though, though incalculable in many ways. You know, not, not something that can be reduced to a, a sort of a reproducible entity in a manufacturing sense. Yes, that's right. I think that there's a tendency in our history to turn grace into a thing. Yeah, commodity. That's right. Commodify it. Uh, but on my reading of Scripture and my reading of the tradition— uh, and I just finished this, this book called The Grammar of Grace, which is a 500-page anthology of readings on the Christian life. That process of, you know, over nine years of reading and reflecting on and just marinating in those who've gone before us, who've written on grace, who've written on the Christian life, that grace names the ways that God acts to renew the world. Like grace is a way of charis in Greek is a way of naming God acts that way in those moments. Oh, gosh, I love that. I can remember that. Uh, I think that the great, the great problem then is just to, to forget that grace is a way of naming what God is doing and turn it into something that we, we have or that it, it's, it's transferred or something like that. Um, and I, we have not always done that well in our long story as a Christian church. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about your new book in just a moment, but I kind of skipped over your doctoral dissertation, you you alluded to that, but I know that was on Wolfhart Pannenberg. Yeah, that's right. And uh, you know, Pannenberg is, as we both know, is is a name uh, that does not always get a lot of press within some evangelical circles. Um, but tell us uh, why you latched onto Pannenberg and uh, why why the rest of the evangelical world needs to uh, learn from him. Well, I think that my interest in Pannenberg actually goes back to your friendship with me during my time at Denver that 
uh, you knew that I was exploring the possibility of going on to do PhD studies, and so you created a kind of extended independent study project for me to do some writing. I studied Luther's Two Kingdoms doctrine, which deepened my interest in theological ways of approaching kingdom, and Pannenberg had written a lot on kingdom. And so I was looking for ways to further the work you and I had started. And Pannenberg just seemed like a very good conversation partner for an extended work on that. Mm -hmm. uh, so the way that evangelicals, I think, have struggled with Pannenberg is that Pannenberg's just really hard to read. He's just <laughs> the guy. Yeah. He's a serious intellectual. In his time and day, he's drawing upon all these different disciplines. He's drawing on anthropology and contemporary you know, biomedicine at yeah, times. It's kind, and it's kind of breathtaking. It's really, really something. Um, but he's not the kind of guy you can dip your toe into very easily. Um, so I, th I think that Pannenberg is a, is a difficult person to translate at times. Yeah. And I don't have a good solution for that. <laughs> you just do the hard work. Huh? You just do. You do it or you he, don't. He is a great person to sit with for a while and let him just train you to be a theologian. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a, that in itself is a good lesson in theological education. That's that, right. You know, we can talk about all kinds of creative um, right. shortcuts, but for some things, there are no shortcuts to the hard work. You no, dive in and do right. it or you don't. I think that to learn any craft is to spend time with craftsmen who practice the craft well. Mm -hmm. And so to read wisely uh, other theologians' work is to sort of sit with good craftsmen and to, in a way, kind of like follow the movement of their hands with the tools. Yeah. And at times we might say, I'm not going to use the tools that way, but I can learn something about the discipline and the care and the kind of intentionality and patience of using the tools as they do. So. I think that was what I learned from Pannenberg in many respects yeah. is that he's, he's hard going at times, but the reward of learning to be a theologian from him was, was I, I'll never, I never won in any other way. Mm. As an amateur, and I mean very amateur woodturner, mm. I know exactly what you're talking about with, mm. <laughs> with the uh, learning how to hold the tools and having to have a mentor who can, who can teach you the angles that's right. Or engaging the grain of the wood. And, That's right. And you're still going to make mistakes and cut yourself and have the tool flip out of your hands at times, but you, you just have to stay under, under it, under the tutelage, you know, in, in an apprenticeship sense. And that's the way that I pitch the classroom environment that I want to cultivate with my theology students, is that on the first day of class, I'll show them a picture on the screen. And it's a picture of a studio, an art studio, and it's filled with about five or six different sculptors and they all have their piece of marble in front of them one of them is clearly older than the rest and he's also working on his sculpture and then around him are these other craftsmen and craftswomen also holding tools working on their pieces and i pitch that as my to my students it's like this is what i want this classroom to feel like is that we're in this room together working on the materials together doing theology together and i'm like the old guy in the room right i'm not going to tell you what the response that you have to give to this thing here that we're working on is, but I'm going to let you see me use the tools. I'm going to let you see me interpret scripture and read the tradition together and to ruminate with you over some of the contemporary voices that we're studying. But I don't ever want you to feel like I'm taking the tools out of your hands. Okay. okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Tell us about your new book, the one uh, coming yeah, out soon. It's called Doing Theology Wisely, uh, a practical introduction to a reflective discipline. It'll be coming out with IVP Academic. Uh, this book began as 
me sitting around thinking, what do I want my theology students to read in the first half of the semester of their first class? So when a student begins to study theology and they've never studied it before, like what do they need to know? Like what's that process and that craft going to look like when you anchor it solidly in the Christian life? So uh, it's be seven chapters with six very practical uh, ways of applying some of these uh, principles at the end of the book called Theology Labs. Um, and I envision that professors uh, in beginning uh, seminary classrooms and upper level undergraduate classrooms could use it in that very first theology class with students who have maybe never really considered how to do theology before. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the theology lab uh, because, you know, the way I was able to finagle you into doing this interview was first to finagle you into making a presentation here at ETS this morning on theological uh, pedagogy. Uh, so I, I kind of shamelessly capitalized on that. And and I first did that finagling because you have developed a reputation at Huntington for being an incredible teacher. And if you can, just give us a, a bite-sized nugget of the presentation you made in our session this morning uh, on some of the things you try to do in teaching theology creatively. Yeah. I, I presented today on a, a lab or an experiential learning opportunity for students to deepen their understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, and that they do that by praying in explicitly Trinitarian ways over the course of a week, keeping a journal, and then reporting on that, essentially reporting on their lab in class at the end of the week. And I have found it to be an incredibly formative, um, learning effective opportunity for students to deepen not just what do Christians believe about the Trinity, but what does the doctrine of the Trinity mean for the way that I pray? And how does my praying depend in some way upon understanding that God is triune? Uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, this great, monstrous, amazing 20th century theologian, has this book called Prayer, and in it he says... The best, very, best book on prayer I've ever read. It is. I mean, everyone should read it, and it's amazing. And there's a line in there where he says, the very possibility of contemplation rests entirely on the Trinity. And I, I have I've told students that, and we've studied the doctrine of a Trinity together in class, and to know something like that intellectually is one thing. But then to pray in a way that they are consciously speaking to God in Trinitarian ways deepens that understanding. And I found it to be profoundly, profoundly influential for students' understanding yeah, yeah, of prayer and the Trinity. Yeah. yeah, it is a changer. I want to loop back a bit to uh, some a point we were talking about with uh, with the church, your your own pastoral ministry, you obviously draw heavily on that as a professor of theology now. But uh, what do you think are some of the some of the ways that the church and the theological academy need to be listening to each other these days? Maybe for any days, but now in particular. That's a really good question. I would like to see. You know, I, I know my institution, and I think that Huntington University is reflective of other Christian higher education schools um, around the United States and probably around the world. I think we need to do a better job of listening to how local churches are asking questions. Like, what, what are the actual 
matters of Christian life and church life that are occupying the local churches around us, uh, either around us in a very local sense of just in the neighborhoods that our schools are located, but also around the country perhaps, um, so that we can help the students that we're teaching be able to go back into the churches that they'll probably go back into in some in some dimension or another uh, in productive ways. Um, I, I don't know exactly what I would like from churches related to uh, schools like Huntington or maybe from a seminary context. Maybe what I long for uh, is it is it increased appreciation of what an extended time, a patient time of formation means for young adults, whether it is a time of going to a Christian liberal arts institution or to some place like Denver Seminary uh, in preparation for a life of ministry, that, that the time, the patience required to do that well is formative in ways that will transcend whatever might a diploma might look like. And I think that there's an increasing sense that formation is something that I can maybe dilute down to completing X numbers of classes, doing X numbers of things, and getting a diploma, when my experience has been that formation takes time, it takes community, it requires great sacrifice sometimes. And if local churches would really believe that, uh, I think it would, it would continue letting what Denver Seminary does be the huge contribution to the church that it is. Well, and that's, as we both know, uh, as a lot of people know, that is increasingly challenging these days with more and more people accessing theological education in various forms, what we call various modalities, um, online learning, and fitting that into already really jammed lives. So, you know, it's not nearly like it was a generation or further ago when, you know, people could take a sort of hiatus out of their life, devote three or four years to nothing but education, uh, and then resume life. It's a, it's a situation now where um, d- doing that sort of devoted formation work is a lot more complicated than it used to be. Have you, um, well, and I know in your own journey, you went to seminary while you were a full-time pastor. Yeah, I was really blessed to be in a very supportive church environment. Uh, they wanted me to finish my master's degree. I actually wasn't full-time. I was part-time. Oh, I thought you were. Okay. Yeah, I was part-time. And to me, maybe that's another another, another desire, right, for churches is to in, in really believe the benefit of having someone in their environment, in their church, supported financially. Maybe not as a full-time employee with benefits, but supported part-time with enough money to continue paying for seminary, to be in the laboratories of learning that take place within the church, yeah. life on life, while at the same time completing some kind of formational training in a seminary environment, I found that to be dramatically beneficial. And I know that Denver's very intentionally about the formation program yeah. and that there are requirements for students actually to be involved in local churches. And I would just championing that idea uh, for as long as we can hold on to it. Mm-hmm. So thinking out uh, toward the future as best you can, uh, theologically, what what are what are the big ticket theological items that you think the church needs to pay attention to moving forward? I mean, I know as a theologian, it's all important, it's all crucial, right? But but different cultural pressures, different cultural movements, sometimes bring different 
theological loci, biblical or biblical themes to the surface for a while? What do, what do you think the church needs to be really looking at seriously, leaning into theologically as we move forward? I, I'm wondering if maybe the way I can respond to that best is to respond to what I see young adults processing, because they will be the voting adults and the leaders of our churches in the next generation. And I see my students wrestling with the ways that they can remain faithful to the gospel in their culture that are not combative, but are winsome, wanting to hold to truth while at the same time not wanting to create wars with people and struggling to find that place to neither tip all the one way to just give up on truth and whatever, I'll just maintain cordial relationships with people, or to tip all the other way toward uh, a kind of combative conviction. Uh, I think of Richard Mao's book on civility. It's an incredibly important book in this regard. I would love to see a generation of young men and women entering leadership in the church and leadership in whatever vocations they take on who are committed to a convicted, compassionate civility. Good phrase. Good phrase. And you you moved from a more uh, church-based form of ministry into an academic ministry. Uh, A lot of students these days are noodling over that possibility. What would you say to someone considering academic form of ministry like what you have and what I have? I would love to say that I am optimistic about that, Uh, but my hopeful realism is going to kick in a little bit at this moment and say Christian higher education is having to change to address a changing marketplace. And I would like to say there will be a position in some institution somewhere for everybody who commits that completes preparational training of some kind to be there. I don't think that will be the case. Uh, And I think we're seeing that more and more. What I do believe, however, is that the people who complete PhDs or some kind of graduate level education, masters or otherwise, if they desire to go to work some kind of teaching institution and that doesn't happen, they are going to be an incredible blessing to the church. And I think that I've seen uh, through my participation in the Center for Pastor Theologians in the Chicago area is that there is a growing, I want to say, momentum around uh, young men and women feeling that the best way they can serve their local churches and the church more broadly institutionally is through continuing on through to advanced degrees, either masters or MDivs or even PhDs not in the hopes of ending up in a classroom, but in the hopes of ending up in church leadership positions, equipped and able to uh, teach in robustly biblical and theological ways, to lead in robustly biblical and theological ways, to counsel in robustly biblical and theological ways. Um, I'm seeing that through the relationships that I'm building uh, with the Center for Pastor Theologians, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm excited to hear you say that because some of those uh, those ministry roles or expressions that you named are not always uh, considered to be overtly dependent upon deep theological thinking. That's right. When we silo our thinking. That's right. But I, I can't think of anything that, or any more pressing need than those who are going to lead the church forward you know, faithfully yeah. uh, in some of the complexities that are uh, that they're just dizzying us right now. 
than the, the capacity to think deeply, biblically, theologically. I, I don't know what, what is better, leadership training, or in, in, in any of those other roles uh, than that. And it's going to require uh, local churches cultivating environments where young people are thinking about their futures and thinking about what it looks like to participate in meaningful ways uh, in the church and outside of the church. And whether or not that meaningful participation requires and includes as just like a matter of fact sort of way. Like the New Testament authors, they never took it for granted you'd get baptized. Of course you're going to get baptized. Uh, the order that it happens and the order in which you have it and versus the Holy Spirit come to you, and that varies in all these really interesting ways in the book of Acts, but of course you're going to get baptized. The same sort of way, if it becomes so commonplace in the local church to imagine young people going into meaningful positions in the world, of course you're going to get trained. Of course you're going to get educated. Of course you're going to get under wise mentors and institutions that you can grow and flourish in, hopefully like Denver Seminary, hopefully like Huntington University, uh, and how the changing marketplace will change schools like us and, and like Denver, I, I couldn't even begin to say. Yeah. Uh, but I believe there's always a place for that kind of patient formational change that takes place in a young person's life through uh, an institution like Huntington or like Denver Seminary. Yeah. I really believe that. Whatever the packaging is. That's right. It's got to happen. got to be a given. Hey, is there anything, as you look back over uh, your ministry path, uh, if you had a do-over, anything you'd do differently? That's a great question. I don't think so. Uh, Not because I've made great choices all the way along, but I really believe that God's good providential care has guided me every step of the way. And had I known where I would end up today, I would have taken a different path. I would have taken a more direct path. I would have taken a more pragmatically efficient path. And I would not be able to be the person that I am today doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm grateful for God yeah, to do that yeah. to me. God, yeah, as much as I believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, I, I do have questions about whether God has the ability to draw a straight line, if you know what I mean. Well, I very much do. That, and again, you've, you've named just then again one of my great longstanding theological passions is that joint between God, the mystery of God's action in the world and how it meets us in our own acting. Yeah. To me, that is mystery, and it's beautiful, and it's worth a lot of time and reflection. So hopefully the Lord will give me opportunity to continue doing that. Man, I hope so. I really do. Um, okay, we're, we're about out of time here, but it is, it is now time for your SSPQ, which is my stereotypically stupid podcast question. First, do, do you know any theologian jokes that are actually funny? I mean, you know, like, a theologian and an archaeologist went into a bar, you know, or, um, you know, or anything that ends with one of those belly-splitting punchlines like, no, silly, I, ha- I said hypostasis, not hypodermic. Or, I mean, do, you, do you know any actually funny theologian jokes? <laughs> I, I am going to disappoint you so profoundly. I know no, I have zero jokes at this moment that I can share with you that are funny. That are theologian jokes. I have nothing. Yeah. Well, I maybe am, because they don't exist. I mean, that's always a possibility. And hey, maybe maybe this points to a breach in my kind of formation. I did go to Denver Seminary, and I got I came out of there with was, no good theologian gap. jokes. Yeah, so that's a that's a curricular thing for you guys to work on. We owe you money for that. Well, frankly, I suspected that the answer might be no. So I have a backup. Do you still have your Toyota pickup? Oh, one of my great sadnesses was having to sell that pickup in order to go to Scotland to do my PhD. But that truck 
has been passed down within the family that I sold it to, from the oldest son to the middle son and now to the youngest son, and it's still going strong. And you're still part of the legacy of that in a sense. That family actually sends me Instagram posts every time of their truck in some place up in the mountains. This makes my heart warm because you know of my love for Toyota trucks. I do. And, and you know, it always um, kind of raises the stock of uh, my guests on this show when they, they share at least something of that love for Toyota trucks. And I still remember yours. And I just had to know if you still had it. Okay, now, but, but here's the, the real last one. Okay, now you, as uh, our listeners will see if they look at your picture on the, the website when we get this posted. I mean, you, you rock this really cool shaved head manicured beard look really well. Thank you so but, much. I mean, you really do. Um, but I want to know, have you ever done upsy-downsy? You know what upsy-downsy is? Please elaborate. Oh, you know, you, you lie on a table and tilt your head backward. No, I've and then never. You put a, are you serious? Are, no. You didn't know that was a thing? I've never known this is a thing. Well, this kind of ruins my joke then uh, because you got to know what upsy-downsy is. You can find it on YouTube. Yeah, I'm going to have to. Yeah, my kids, my teenager on, is going to have to show me all about lie it. Lie on your back on a table, lean your head back. Okay. And you can, and then and, and you speak or sing a song or something upside down. Um it, it really is, it, it is quite funny, but I'm wondering, you know, given your, your really cool shaved head groomed beard look, if you did upsy downsy, you're going to look like, you know, a guy with a normal head of hair and a shaven face. And I'm just wondering, I was going to ask you if you have ever done upsy downsy and your kids, what's your kid's reaction to that was? Well, now I've got a project to return home from San Diego with. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to turn my, my Hannah and my Abigail loose on the upsy downsy project and I will send you either a picture or a short video. And the I YouTube. Promise. Yeah. I will and, do it. And, and there's some chance, some off chance it might show up on the Denver Seminary Engage 360 website. You'd, you'd never know. I'll but, keep that in mind. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, Kent, thanks. We've been interacting today with uh, Dr. Kent Eilers, Professor of Theology at Huntington University. Uh, I want you to make sure to, to look him up and get his books. You will not be disappointed by uh, the, the intersection of faith and life and ministry that he's been talking about today when you read his stuff. Uh, Kent, thanks. This has really been a treat to reconnect with you and have you uh, uh, speak into lots of people's lives through this. Uh, as I said, this has been Engage 360. I'm your host, Don Payne. On behalf of our production team, thanks again for listening. We hope you'll uh, download a lot of episodes and subscribe to this on your favorite podcast platform. And if you've liked anything at all, uh, even the comments about Toyota pickups, uh, give, us a, give us a good review and a rating, and we'll look forward to uh, interacting with you again soon. You can Email us, podcast at denverseminary.edu. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear you. Take care.